everyone, and welcome to This Mom Loves. I'm Kate Wynn. I'm a wife, a mom. My daughters, Olivia and Eva, are 13 and 11. I'm a teacher currently teaching kindergarten. I'm also a blogger at thismomloves.ca, a freelance writer, a TV guest, and a podcaster. And thank you so much for being here for the final episode of the season. I'm going to kick my favorite things off with some historical fiction with a royal theme. In the lifestyle segment, I'll be talking about some tips for handling kids' birthday party invitations. And my very special guest today is Sarah Richardson. Yes, you heard that right. The designer extraordinaire from many HGTV series is here with me. And I've interviewed Sarah twice before. The first time way back near the beginning of the blog um, was an interview over email. And it actually became my first viral post when she shared it on her Facebook page. And I watched the stats spike up, which was really fun. The last time I interviewed her was about a year and a half ago um, for the first season of Sarah Off the Grid. And we spoke over the phone that time. And when we started our chat this week, I was on my lunch break at school and I warned her that she might hear the bell ring in the background. And she's got a pretty good memory because she said, oh, well, the last time we talked, I think it was lunch break and you were out in your car at school. And she was correct about that. So I take whatever opportunities I can get to to um, keep all my balls in the air, so to speak. And we're going to be talking about the new season of Sarah Off the Grid and so much more, including some questions sent in by listeners, which Sarah answers, which is really fun. So please stick around for that. My favorite thing this week is a book called The Gown, a novel of the royal wedding by Canadian author Jennifer Robson. So this book goes back and forth between a post-war London in 1947 with the stories of two embroiderers who are tasked with working on the wedding gown of the now Queen Elizabeth II. And then the other part of the story is in 2016 in Toronto, where one of the granddaughters of one of these embroiderers is unraveling the mystery of her nan's life back in London. So, um, I mean, of course, I love the royal trivia. I'm interested in the royal family. And it's historical fiction, so important to note that there's a fictional component. The main characters are, are made up. But the general facts about the wedding and the dress production are accurate. So there's some neat little trivia in there, as well as the depiction of life after World War II in London, which it's always interesting to get those historical um, historical pieces. And I realized how much people love to connect to books because I got so excited in this one when the authors started talking about Tottenham Court Road tube station in London. And she made reference to it a couple times. And I thought, oh, Tottenham Court Road, because that was the tube station we used when my friends Amanda and Allison and I went there for my 40th birthday. The place we were staying was right near there. So that was kind of our station. And we were on the tube a ton during that, uh, that time in London. So when you actually can say, oh, I've been there. I know that place you kind of get a little bit more excited in a book so that was fun too but I really enjoyed the story it's definitely a departure much lighter than my usual suspense thrillers but uh, but definitely glad I read it so that is The Gown by Canadian author Jennifer Robson you can find This Mom Loves on social media I'm on Twitter and Facebook at This Mom Loves as well as on Instagram at Kate This Mom Loves I'd love to hear from you please feel free to uh, send me a message let me know what you want to hear more about in season three Maybe you've got some favorite things to suggest or lifestyle topics that you want to see covered or even guest suggestions, people who you think might be a great fit for the show. So I'd love to uh, to get a message from you on social media or even if you just want to um, give a shout out and tell me what you have enjoyed about this season of the show, that would be great too. Next up, I just want to talk for a moment about best practices when it comes to kids' birthday party invitations. And I was actually on um, Global's The Morning Show a little while ago and was asked about teacher pet peeves. 
And one that I talked about was birthday party invitations kind of gone wrong at school. And I only had a moment to, to explain it. And I've had some questions since. So I thought it would be a good idea to just outline some best practices here on the show today. So if you have a younger child, the best thing to do is to send the invitations into the teacher through the communication bag or the agenda, whatever you call it, and just ask if the teacher can then distribute into the other children's bags. Um, And obviously this is so kids won't have their feelings hurt when things are distributed in front of them. I mean, I told a story about older girls that I I know of where a girl brought invitations and they were all at the coat rack in the morning and she kind of went one by one and handed them out to every girl in the class except one. And you don't want that sort of thing happening for sure. And I know some people say, oh, this sort of thing builds resilience. And it does. And for sure, they need to know sometimes that there are things they aren't invited to. But that will happen a lot accidentally, even despite our best intentions. So I think it's still good if we minimize it as much as we can. And it's funny. I mean, kindergarten kids for sure already use birthday parties as weapons. Like the whole, okay, let me play with that. Or you're not coming to my birthday party. And I have to remind them, your birthday is eight months away. So just stop and move on. Um, so, you know, you just want to, want to protect their feelings. Another good step is to label the envelopes. So the kids aren't just handing them out. I know sometimes parents say, okay, well, here's your six invitations, give them to whoever you want, but then they can be handing them out randomly to, uh, you know, to the bus driver or even just to passing kids in the hall. Like, oh, I like that big kid. I'm going to, going to hand them the invitation. Now there's nothing wrong with inviting older kids. One of my daughters has actually been invited to a couple of birthday parties. She's in grade five now and she's been invited to a couple of kindergarten parties with a couple of other older kids because they help out in some way with those kids or whatever and she's actually found it kind of fun so I mean if you're deliberately asking an older kid that's perfectly fine but you just don't want envelopes handed out randomly Uh, and you can ask your child so that you can sit down and talk about who they play with the most who they want to include and I've even had parents email me because it's kindergarten to ask who their child seems to hang around the most which is is a perfectly fine question to ask in the older grades of course they'll be clear about who they want to have at their party and of course, there's also the question of how many do you have to invite? So someone on Facebook had left a comment on my post saying, you know, I think if you're gonna have a party, you should have everyone. Like if it's a girl's party, have every girl in the class. And I get that. I mean, if you're using some sort of venue where you can have that many people, it's a nice thing to consider. But I also totally understand that different venues and party packages, it's like, okay, this is the, you pay for this package, you get eight kids. And I know parties can get expensive. Sometimes there's not enough space. So of course you have the right to decide who you want to invite into your home or invite to a party. But I would just be careful not to leave a small number out. So if there's a dozen girls in the class and you're having four to a little party, I think that's perfectly fine. That's life. That's what happens. But if there's a dozen girls and you're having 10 is there any way you could include the extra ones? Just see, maybe see what you can do. Um, and the third step is also to remind our kids not to talk about parties, whether you're the host or whether you're attending a party in front of others who aren't invited. It's just not good manners. I remember when I was back in grade five, I can picture it vividly sitting in the portable. We were sitting in a group, about six girls, kind of our desks were grouped together. And one girl was having a sleepover that night. And the other girls sitting in my group were all part of it. And so one of the guests was like counting down, okay, six hours, five hours. And she kept counting it down. And I just thought, wow, I wasn't asked to this. And I have to sit here and, you know, hear this. And I mean, it's perfectly fine that I wasn't invited because again, that's life, but you know, probably wasn't really that great that the other child was counting down in front of someone who wasn't coming. So again, it will teach resilience. Yes. But if we can cut back a little bit on hurt feelings, I think it's just the right thing to do. I am so thrilled to welcome my special guest this week. 
Sarah Richardson is the award-winning founder of Sarah Richardson Design, Inc., the host and co-producer of eight hit HGTV series, a best-selling book author, and she's back on HGTV Canada right now with the second season of Sarah Off the Grid. And she's a mom too. Welcome, Sarah. Welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here. So I have seen the first episode of the new season of Sarah Off the Grid, and I loved it, of course. So what can viewers expect this time around? I think this time it's a completely different adventure because in the first season of Sarah Off the Grid, we were tackling a from-the-ground-up build on a rural piece of property, and we were starting literally from ground zero with an empty field. And I really, you know, I like to think about how the solutions and the programs that we are sharing with our viewers resonate and what that means to them and how the design ideas can help them and inspire them. And so after tackling this massive build, uh, I was thinking about, you know, what, what homeowners across this country are dealing with. And I think most of them are probably in a neighborhood that they know they love, maybe that they're in a space that isn't quite meeting their needs. They might be thinking about how they could potentially expand their home, um, how to take an original home and update it and make it new and modern now. And so I wanted to tackle an existing house um, and look at how to contemporize it, how to put on a modern addition, and how to take something that is 100 years old and set it up so it's ready for the next hunt. And so that is our big adventure. Okay. And how do you find designing a rental property is different than designing a home for your own family to live in? I think that no matter, no matter who I'm designing for, whether it's for a client, whether it's for myself, whether it's as a rental or as an investment, I think that it's always important to imagine when it's your own home, you can do exactly what, what basically services what you like best. Right. It's your color palette. It's the finishes and materials that you like best. But if you're doing it for a client or if you're doing it for potentially for somebody in a rental, you have to imagine who is that person? What do they want? How do they want to live? And how can I create something that is both innovative and interesting and creative yet has mass broad appeal at the same time. So I think that's the biggest challenge is when you're designing for yourself, you think, do I like it? Does my family like it? Okay, if it ticks both of those boxes, we move forward. But now it has to go through a whole other set of filters. Do I like it? Will everyone like it? Is there anyone that won't like it? How will this appeal? How will this stand the test of time? Is it durable? Is it practical? Is it smart? Is it stylish? So it's sort of, um, I'd say it's just extra challenging. Mm -hmm. Well, and something I saw on the show that was really cool that I did not know about was the whole Wayfair image search option. So we did a huge reno last year, tons of stuff from Wayfair, but that was really neat how you did that with the, with the light fixture. Oh my gosh. The, yeah, the, the, the Wayfair image search is groundbreaking, amazing, and super awesomely helpful. So I think lots of people, they may have seen something. Maybe you were in a restaurant and you saw, you know, there was a dining chair and you liked the way it felt and, you know, you liked the way it looked and you think, oh gosh, I wish I could find that for my own home. I mean, how amazing 
that you can actually input a photograph and then it does the hard work for you and sifts through tens of thousands of options to deliver a pretty succinct um, and completely on target selection ready for you to embrace. So I was really, I have to say that was, that was real time the first time I had tried it and I couldn't believe the, the results it created for me. Oh, neat. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So obviously there's a connection between the whole off the grid and sustainability idea and then being eco-friendly. And I'm curious to know what are some of the smaller ways that you find you and your family are able to be green around the house? Um, I think, I mean, obviously I embrace natural materials. And so I think that's, that's really, there's so many, I think there's so many little things that you can do now. And I think that um, manufacturers on the whole have helped us get so much better about, um, about being environmentally friendly. So things like sinks with no VOCs, um, LED light bulbs that conserve, that consume so much less energy on a daily basis. If you think about, I installed engineered floors throughout. So instead of needing three quarters of an inch thick of solid wood, you have a very thin, you know, a sixteenth or so um, of wood on the top, and then it has a plywood base on it. So that's allowing all of the, the beautiful natural wood to go a lot further. It's easy to install. It comes pre-finished. Um, so there's less dust and everything on the job site. I mean, I just, I think that there are so many, I think, it's one part awareness on the part of the the renovator, the contractor, the designer, and then it's one part being lucky and thankful to be doing it in the day and age that we are, because it's that much easier to to keep a job site that isn't harmful. I also think one of the one of the really fun things we did is we happened to have a recycling uh, depot right near the property. And we were able to take all of our scrap metal, uh, aluminum, steel, brass, and copper, and actually not just get rid of it, but sell it to be recycled. And I think that so often when people are renovating, they're not aware of, of all the options, not only to um, save or to reuse or to recycle, but maybe even to profit from. So, you know, organizations like Habitat for Humanity will come and remove an existing kitchen or plumbing fixtures or what have you if they're in great working order and they'll give you a tax receipt. I mean there are lots of there are lots of smart things you can do um to help reduce your footprint. Well we were thrilled when we did our reno because we knew someone who was building a home and he was a builder himself, building himself just a, a bachelor home. And he came and took out our kitchen and kind of designed things so that he could just take our old kitchen and put it into his new house. So it felt good to know that it was being reused and not just going to a landfill. Yeah, we had the exact same experience when we renovated our cottage and the kitchen had been there for ten years and it was still in great working order. And one of our neighbors came and took it away every single piece of it and reinstalled it, was able to make a few modifications and, you know, it's living a second life. Same with our kitchen from home. Neighbors of ours in the country took it and reinstalled it. So I get to go visit my old kitchen that I love for over 10 years on a regular basis. It's amazing. Very neat. 
So I think for some people, off the grid also has a connotation of, of kind of unreachable. Like I'm going camping, I'll be off the grid, you can't get a hold of me. But I yeah. assume you do have cell service and Wi-Fi at Starlight Farm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We have we have everything. We have all the comforts. We are off the grid, but we are off the grid in terms of our dependence. Um, and I yeah. sometimes wish we could be more off the grid in terms of our connectivity and just turn it off <laughs> and be unreachable. That was actually my next question. Uh-huh. Because I, I was just wondering, because you're always, I'm sure, receiving work-related emails and messages and you have a team working for you. So are you able to kind of step away from that technology? Do you have any ground rules for your team or even for your family in terms of when phones are off or when business can be done or anything like that? Well, I think one of the, I've, I've said this for a long time, one of the one of the best lessons I ever learned was early on when I was dating my husband. And I used to take meetings late at night, on weekends, whenever it suited my clients. And he sort of recognized that this is a bit of a challenge, um, not only for us being able to spend time together, but for my, you know, state of well-being, um, because I was always on call and getting pulled into things at any time of day, night, evening, weekend. And he said, I said, but I have to be available. And he said, but why? If they ask for a meeting, why not just say, oh, I'm actually booked at seven on Thursday. I could see you at nine on Friday. And he helped me really reset some boundaries um, that I have put in place ever since. So if someone emails me after 6 o'clock or 6.30 on a Friday, I don't think it needs a response until Monday morning. If I decide that I'm going to be working on a Saturday and I send out some emails, I certainly don't expect a response. And I think it's people, everybody in this world needs to respect that people have business hours. And so I have business hours like everyone else. Uh, I'm really good at responding to emails and following up and keeping in touch. But generally speaking, you know, contractors, trades, everybody needs a couple of days off. So most sites are not running seven days a week, which is a great thing because everybody, I mean, I, I think we all have this high level of connectivity and availability, but at the same time, um, none of us should ever feel the need to apologize for having a life. There's a work-life balance and nobody's, I don't think ever, anybody's actually in this world uh, striving to work more and live less. We are all trying to live more and work less. And so I think as a collective society, we should embrace that and support that. So a couple of questions from this Mom Loves listeners. Mm -hmm. So Donna and Kelly's questions kind of go together. Donna wants to know, did you know early on you wanted to be a designer? And Kelly wants to know, what was your very first design project? So maybe you can put that together. Uh -huh. um, I didn't necessarily know really early on that I wanted to be a designer. I was interested in fashion and graphic design when I was in junior school. Um, that was sort of my my key passion. Um, and I would say my first project was definitely um, rearranging the furniture in my bedroom when I got sent to my room after having a fight with my brother. And then my mom would say, okay, you can come, come down now. And I'd say, no, it's okay. I'm, I'm busy. And she'd say, what are you doing? I'm, I'm just rearranging the furniture in my bedroom. So uh, I was always allowed to do that at home. And I used to work with my mom, you know, repainting the dining room, changing the color of the living room, the hall, what have you. And then I, when I was pretty young, I was probably in grade seven or eight, I moved up to our third floor and took over the whole third floor. I repainted it, pulled up carpeting, 
um, decorated it with help from my mom. So I was, I was always, I was into it from a very early age. And Mercy would like to know, have you ever disliked your client's style or choices, but had to complete the project anyway? Marcy, that's a tough question, but of course, um, the thing, <laughs> the thing about, so my job as a designer is that it is my job to realize, um, a, a client's individual taste. And it's important to recognize that their taste and my taste isn't always the same. I try and help curate taste and style that works for them through my lens. Um, but I don't, I always say I don't take sort of a cowboy X approach to design. I'm not looking at stamping my style on everybody's home. I want it to look and feel like their home. Um, but I would say definitely um, in the early days when I didn't have as much confidence in my design vision, I I certainly felt that um, I wasn't always being allowed to do what I thought was best. But I didn't, uh, that was, you know, that was my challenges. I didn't have, I didn't have conviction in my own opinion. And I got to a point where I decided that the best thing to do would be to stand behind my decision. Um, and if I was willing to do that, then I could almost always get the client on board. In other words, I would say, I think this is the right choice. If it gets here and you don't think it is, then I will take it back. And offering that sort of money back guarantee required that I really believed in what I was doing, but it also allowed my clients to believe in me and think that I had their best interests at heart, and it took the stress off them. And there was a moment when I designed, I think it was probably my first piece of custom upholstered furniture for a client, and they had chosen to upholster it in a $200 a yard silk that I could absolutely not afford the $4,000 charge for if I was about to own that piece of furniture. So you better bet that I tried really hard to make sure I had captured their vision perfectly. And when it arrived, they loved it, fortunately. And I really, I learned a lot from that. And I still do it to this day. If a client's not happy with something, we'll take it back. Okay. And shifting to parenting side of things for a moment. So my girls are 13 and almost 11 and yours, I think, are 12 and 10. Is that right? No, nope, 13 and almost 11. Okay, so since the since the filming, they've gone up. So basically the same ages. So I'm wondering, I know I love this phase, and I think it's funny that we took my daughter to get a ukulele too, just like we saw you taking, oh my gosh, taking really? your daughter to get one. Yep. But I'm just wondering, what are you finding are the best things about this phase? Because to me, I, I know I'm really enjoying it. Uh, what I think is amazing about this new age with our kids is that they are they are both interesting and interested, which is, to, you know, values that I really hold uh, in high regard. And I think that while, you know, I found, I found a photo recently of them when they were so little and they were so cute and so yummy um, and so sweet. But I, while I miss those days, I, I love being able to have conversations. I love watching how their, how their minds think and process. Um, how they navigate some tough choices, whether it's with friends or school or learning or sports. Um, and I think one of the most thrilling things is to, to see them be their own people and to, to have an understanding of what their core values are. And they're great adventurers. Um, 
So I think one of one of the most amazing things now they both are they're ski racers and they're they're far better skiers than I am. And that it's so as a parent I think there's nothing you could wish for more than to see your kids thrive and be happy um and to have a sense of <clears throat> excuse me, to have a sense of um self confidence uh in in what they're doing and and independence. I think it's amazing. And I, I always wondered before, because I thought, well, well, I think when they're getting into their teenage years, you know, will that be, will that be as good? And yes, I think every year is different. Every year is new. Um, and it's uncharted territory as a parent, but the rewards are huge. Plus now in this season, in this season, they were able to swing hammers and help with demo and they really, they really dug in and pitched in and I think that's amazing is that they can make their choices about what they want to do and how they can help. Yeah, and I think it's so neat for for viewers to see them getting involved in that too. That's great. So my very last question for you, Sarah, is do you have a this mom loves or a favorite thing to recommend to listeners? Maybe an app or a book or a game or a beauty product, anything that you think uh, people might like? As a mom, I feel like we're always uh, trying to look our best in the in the shortest period of time. So I think that one of the game changers for me in the past few years has been my partnership with Marcel. Um, mm-hmm. And I love being able to use uh, hypoallergenic fragrance-free products that are made right here in Canada um, that help me both look good and feel good. And so I feel like that's, that's half the battle any given day. <laughs> Yes, fair enough. Okay, so season two of Sarah Off the Grid airs Sunday nights on HGTV Canada, and you can also catch the episodes at hgtv.ca. Thank you so much for being here, Sarah. Lovely to talk to you. Hope you have a great day. And that brings us to the end of episode 27 of This Mom Loves, as well as this season. So you can find all the information from today's show in the show notes at thismumloves.ca slash podcasts. And again, that's episode 27. There will be links to all of Sarah Richardson's um, accounts as well as to Sarah Off the Grid on hgtv.ca. I want to thank you all for your support throughout the first 27 episodes of the show. You can spend uh, the next few weeks catching up on any episodes you've missed. And as always, I would appreciate it so much if you could help spread the word, whether it's with a tweet, a Facebook or Instagram post, or even just telling somebody in person if you think they would enjoy this mom loves as well. Thanks to my editor, Lucas Wojcicki. We will be back in a few weeks with a brand new season. And we have so many amazing things lined up already. I can't wait. Some final words for now. You can always tell who the strong women are. They're the ones building one another up instead of tearing each other down. And I want to say thanks to my listeners, all you strong women out there, for helping to build me up and making this mom loves a success. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye.